Preface of the Admirable Bashville by George Bernard Shaw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Admirable Bashville Preface The Admirable Bashville is a product of the British law of copyright. As that law stands at present, the first person who patches up a stage version of a novel, however worthless and absurd that version may be, and has it read by himself and a few confederates to another confederate who has paid for admission in a hall licensed for theatrical performances, secures the stage rights of that novel, even as against the author himself, and the author must buy him out before he can touch his own work for the purposes of the stage. A famous case in point is the drama of East Lynne, adapted from the late Mrs. Henry Wood's novel of that name. It was enormously popular, and is still the surest refuge of touring companies in distress. Many authors feel that Mrs. Henry Wood was hardly used in not getting any of the money which was plentifully made in this way through her story. To my mind, since her literary copyright probably brought her a fair wage for the work of writing the book, her real grievance was, first, that her name and credit were attached to a play with which she had nothing to do, and which may quite possibly have been to her a detestable travesty and profanation of her story, and second, that the authors of that play had the legal power to prevent her from having any version of her own performed, if she had wished to make one. There is only one way in which the author can protect himself, and that is by making a version of his own and going through the same legal farce with it. But the legal farce involves the hire of a hall and the payment of a fee of two guineas to the king's reader of plays. When I wrote Cashel Byron's Profession, I had no guineas to spare, a common disability of young authors. What is equally common, I did not know the law. A reasonable man may guess a reasonable law, but no man can guess a foolish anomaly. Fortunately, by the time my book so suddenly revived in America I was aware of the danger, and in a position to protect myself by writing and performing the admirable Bashville. The prudence of doing so was soon demonstrated, for rumors soon reached me of several American stage versions, and one of these has actually been played in New York, with the boxing scenes under the management, so it is stated, of the eminent pugilist Mr. James J. Corbett. The New York press, in a somewhat derisive vein, conveyed the impression that in this version Cashel Byron sought to interest the public, rather as the last of the noble race of the Byrons of Dorsetshire than as his unromantic self, but in justice to a play which I never read, and an actor whom I never saw, and who honorably offered to treat me as if I had legal rights in the matter, I must not accept the newspaper evidence as conclusive. As I write these words, I am promised by the King in his speech to the Parliament a new copyright bill. I believe it embodies, in our British fashion, the recommendations of the book publishers as to the concerns of the authors, and the notions of the musical publishers as to the concerns of the playwrights. As author and playwright, I am duly obliged to the commission for saving me the trouble of speaking for myself, and to the witnesses for speaking for me. But unless Parliament takes the opportunity of giving the authors of all printed works of fiction, whether dramatic or narrative, both playwright and copyright, as in America, such to be independent of any insertions or omissions of formulas about all rights reserved or the like, I am afraid the new copyright bill will leave me with exactly the opinion both of the copyright law and the wisdom of Parliament I at present entertain. As a good socialist I do not at all object to the limitation of my right of property in my own works to a comparatively brief period, 
followed by a complete communism. In fact, I cannot see why the same salutary limitation should not be applied to all property rights whatsoever, but a system which enables any alert sharper to acquire property rights in my stories as against myself and the rest of the community would, it seems to me, justify a rebellion if authors were numerous and warlike enough to make one. It may be asked why I have written the admirable Bashville in blank verse. My answer is that I had but a week to write it in. Blank verse is so childishly easy and expeditious, hence, by the way, Shakespeare's copious output, that by adopting it I was enabled to do within the week what would have cost me a month in prose. Besides, I am fond of blank verse. Not nineteenth-century blank verse, of course, nor indeed, with a very few exceptions, any post-Shakespearean blank verse. Nay, not Shakespearean blank verse itself later than the histories. When an author can write the prose dialogue of the first scene in As You Like It, or Hamlet's colloquies with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, there is really no excuse for the seven ages and to be or not to be, except the excuse of a haste that made great facility indispensable. I am quite sure that anyone who is to recover the charm of blank verse must frankly go back to its beginnings and start a literary pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. I like the melodious sing-song, the clear, simple one-line and two-line sayings, and the occasional rhymed tags, like the half-closes in an eighteenth-century symphony, in Peel, Kidd, Green, and the histories of Shakespeare. How anyone with music in him can turn from Henry the Sixth, John, and the two Richards, to such a mess of verse half-developed into rhetorical prose as Cymbeline, is to me explicable only by the uncivil hypothesis that the artistic qualities in the Elizabethan drama do not exist for most of its critics, so that they hang on to its purely prosaic content and hypnotize themselves into absurd exaggerations of the value of that content. Even poets fall under the spell. Ben Jonson described Marlowe's line as mighty, as well put Michelangelo's epitaph on the tombstone of Paolo Uccello. No wonder Johnson's blank verse is the most horribly disagreeable product in literature, and indicates his most prosaic mood, as surely as his shorter rhymed measures indicate his poetic mood. Marlowe never wrote a mighty line in his life. Cowper's single phrase, Toll for the Brave, drowns all his mightinesses as Great Tom drowns a military band. But Marlowe took that very pleasant-sounding rigmarole of peel and green, and added to its sunny daylight the insane splendors of night and the cheap tragedy of crime. Because he had only a common sort of brain, he was hopelessly beaten by Shakespeare, but he had a fine ear and a soaring spirit. In short, one does not forget wanton Arethusa's azure arms and the like. But the pleasant-sounding rigmarole was the basis of the whole thing, and as long as that rigmarole was practiced frankly for the sake of its pleasantness, it was readable and speakable. It lasted until Shakespeare did to it what Raphael did to Italian painting, that is, overcharged and burst it by making it the vehicle of a new order of thought, involving a mass of intellectual ferment and psychological research. The rigmarole could not stand the strain, and Shakespeare's style ended in a chaos of half-shattered old forms, half-emancipated new ones, with occasional bursts of prose eloquence on the one hand, occasional delicious echoes of the rigmarole, mostly from Caliban's and mask personages on the other, with, alas, a great deal of filling up with formulary blank verse which had no purpose except to save the author's time and thought. When a great man destroys an art form in this way, its ruins make palaces for the clever would-be great. After Michelangelo and Raphael, Giulio Romano and the Caracci, 
after Marlowe and Shakespeare, Chapman and the police news poet Webster. Webster's specialty was blood, Chapman's balderdash. Many of us by this time find it difficult to believe that pre-Ruskinite art criticism used to prostrate itself before the works of Domenicino and Guido, and to patronize the modest little beginnings of those who came between Cimabue and Masaccio. But we have only to look at our own current criticism of Elizabethan drama to satisfy ourselves that in an art which has not yet found its Ruskin or its pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, the same folly is still academically propagated. It is possible, and even usual, for men professing to have ears and a sense of poetry to snub Peel and Green, and grovel before Fletcher and Webster. Fletcher, a facile blank-verse penny-aligner, Webster, a turgid paper cutthroat. The subject is one which I really cannot pursue without intemperance of language. The man who thinks the Duchess of Malfi better than David and Bathsheba is outside the pale, not merely of literature, but almost of humanity. Yet some of the worst of these post-Shakespearean duffers, from Johnson to Haywood, suddenly became poets when they turned from the big drum of pseudo-Shakespearean drama to the pipe and tabor of the mask, exactly as Shakespeare himself recovered the old charm of the rigmarole when he turned from Prospero to Ariel and Caliban. Cyril Turner and Haywood could certainly have produced very pretty rigmarole plays if they had begun where Shakespeare began, instead of trying to begin where he left off. Johnson and Beaumont would very likely have done themselves credit on the same terms. Marston would have had at least a chance. Massinger was in his right place, such as it was, and one would not disturb the gentle Ford, who was never born to storm the footlights. Webster could have done no good anyhow or anywhere. The man was a fool and Chapman would always have been a blathering, unreadable pedant, like Lander, in spite of his classical amateurship and respectable strenuosity of character. But with these exceptions, it may plausibly be held that if Marlowe and Shakespeare could have been kept out of their way, the rest would have done well enough on the lines of Peel and Green. However, they thought otherwise, and now that their free-thinking paganism, so dazzling to the pupils of Paley and the converts of Wesley, offers itself in vain to the disciples of Darwin and Nietzsche, there is an end of them, and a good riddance, too. Accordingly, I have poetasted the admirable Bashville in the rigmarole style. And lest the Webster worshippers should declare that there is not a single correct line in all my three acts, I have stolen or paraphrased a few from Marlowe and Shakespeare, not to mention Henry Carey, so that if any man dares quote me derisively, he shall do so in peril of inadvertently lighting on a purple patch from Hamlet or Faustus. I have also endeavoured in this little play to prove that I am not the heartless creature some of my critics take me for. I have strictly observed the established laws of stage popularity and probability. I have simplified the character of the heroine, and summed up her sweetness in the one sacred word, love. I have given consistency to the heroism of Cashel. I have paid to morality, in the final scene, the tribute of poetic justice. I have restored patriotism to its usual place on the stage, and gracefully acknowledged the throne as the fountain of social honour. I have paid particular attention to the construction of the play, which will be found equal in this respect to the best contemporary models. And I trust the result will be found satisfactory. End of Preface